So congratulations for making it through two days. The, one of the signs of success is you're still here. <laughs> I'm sure a few of you have not have had thoughts about finding your car keys and packing your bags and heading down the hill. Sometimes people make it all the way down with their suitcase and they sit in the car and they go, oh, shit. and they come all the way back. <laughs> Because it's not easy, huh? it's not easy to, to, it looks easy, it looks like very dreamy and floaty and there's green hills and nice food and nice people and nobody's bugging you and, right, except yourself, <laughs> which you're doing a lot of bugging yourself. <laughs> we see where the source of pain really lies, right? We're often busy blaming our partners and families and bosses and jobs and governments and and then you know there's maybe a place for that but we see that the real source of distress is in this coconut here it's very busy coconut so this is what we get to work with it's the raw material the, you know, we get, we, we're born with a certain hardware right? and some rather dysfunctional software that we have to live with. Fortunately, we can work on the code. You know, you can think of meditation as brain hacking. Right? We're hacking into the hardware and into the software to see if we can actually create more functional, optimal systems. Understand the ones that are dysfunctional, of which there are many, which is what I plan to talk about a little tonight. But first I wanted to share a great Dharma book that I was given recently. So I grew up with in England and uh, a classic children's book series of a plethora of books is they're called Ladybird, the Ladybird book of and you name it. And now they have the Ladybird book of mindfulness. And it's and they have a whole adult series now for all those people who grow up as kids. They have an adult series of so this is um the Ladybird book of mindfulness. I'll read you a few pages. Allison has been staring at the beautiful tree for five hours. She was meant to be in the office. Tomorrow she'll be fired. In this way, mindfulness will have solved her work-related stress. <laughs> Clive likes to practice loving-kindness meditation. This is when someone thinks of a friend, then sends them love. Clive finds this easier than bo bothering to meet his friends or send them money. <laughs> you can get the English, you know. Valentine became a Buddhist because he was interested in Dharma. Dharma is a word for cosmic law and order. Valentine is sad. He thought Dharma was a type of curry. <laughs> and on it goes. Oh, this is really funny. <laughs> this, is, this is my nature retreat. There's a couple of guys on a raft. And Tom and Mozart have gone on a rafting retreat in California. 
With only a bottle of water and an inspirational haiku poem, they must find their way to a state of intense curiosity and awareness. They are lost and tired, and Mozart wants to go, give up, and go find some hookers. <laughs> and on it goes. <laughs> Mindfulness comes to ladybird books. <laughs> Anyhow, very funny. Yeah, it's amazing how mindfulness is coming into the mainstream, right? It's everywhere, right? Children's books and a, a fifth of the Houses of Parliament, which is equivalent to Congress here in England, have gone through an eight-week MBSR mindfulness program. Amazing. A, can you imagine a fifth of Congress going through an eight-week <laughs> mindfulness program? No, you can't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As far as I know, we have one mindfulness meditating uh, congressman, Tim Ryan from Ohio, wonderful, wonderful human being and politician, who tries in vain to teach across the aisle uh, in, in uh, D.C. And uh, so far, he teaches, you know, sort of um, various people in the administration, but not actually uh, anybody else in Congress. So... Um, so what I wanted to do tonight a little bit is to give some theoretical, not theoretical, but some framework for what we're doing here and how your experience, uh, how what we're doing. I want to contextualize the practice. The, and, and when we're on retreat, we can get bogged down into a lot of minutiae. Right? We're working with how do I release my controlling the breath? You know? or we're obsessed with our neighbor's breath, or we, we're you know, exploring all kinds of interesting and difficult things, beautiful and wonderful. And, and then we realize, oh shit, I gotta go home tomorrow. And I'm in this really altered state, and I'm feeling very vulnerable and sensitive, and how am I gonna navigate, and what has this got to do with that anyway? I came here with an intention. I have no idea what it was because that was weeks ago. And now I'm wondering what this is all about. How do I make sense of it in the bigger picture of my life and uh, in my, my, in my practice, my Dharma practice? So, one of the reasons the Buddha, who began teaching 2,600 years ago, was because he realized that people wanted to be happy, but went about it in the wrong way. Everybody wants to be happy, but we lack often the tools or the, the guide, the plan, the wherewithal to discover what it means to live with peace in amidst this world of turmoil. So maybe you've seen this for yourself, how that you've, you, you know, an intention is to be peaceful, clear, wise, and then you've probably seen how many pickles you get into, how many ways that you trip yourself up with reactivity and judgments and comparing and self-hatred or 
Has anybody been basking in peace for two and a half days? We're in a peaceful place, but not necessarily at peace within it. So what is up with that? Reminds me of this uh, cartoon that I read um, from the New Yorker. There was a picture of um, a, a goldfish bowl with a couple of goldfish in it. And one, no, there's no, there's no there were two, two goldfish in, 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 in nature. I don't know if goldfish actually ever exist in nature, but I think they do somewhere. Um, I've never seen them, uh, you know. <laughs> Anyhow, at some point they were in a natural setting. <laughs> and one says to the other, so Joe, what are you aspiring for in life? What, what's your vision, you know? And Joe says, well, I want the little glass bowl with the colored gravel and the little plastic plant and the... Here we are in this vast ocean of life, beautiful, amazing, wondrous, and we want this little thing, you know, whatever our little tiny thing is, right? We, we, We sort of condense this possibility into sometimes something very small uh, and... um, not quite what's going to provide us actual real happiness. Or another version of that story, uh, two dolphins swimming in the sea, and uh, one says to the other, so what do, you, uh, what do you hope for in life? And the other one, what's going to make you complete? And the other one says, well, what's really going to do it is when I'm finally swimming with a retired couple from Florida. <laughs> or another way of putting uh, mistaken (laughs) pursuit for happiness. Um, So there was an interesting experiment done recently, which is very relevant to meditators. So people were asked to sit quietly in a room by themselves without any stimulation, including without any smartphone. And they were asked to sit in the room quietly and do nothing. Or they could sit quietly in the room and, and administer themselves an electric shock. So they were asked to be in the room, I think about 10 minutes. And they wanted to see, you know, like, what's people's capacity for just sitting quietly, you know? Or do they drive themselves bonkers and then need to have some stimulus, even if it's a painful electric shock? And I forget exactly what the percentage is. Maybe somebody knows this research here, but I think it was at least, uh, how many was it? Like 40 to 60% of people would rather have received an electric shock than just to sit quietly in a room. Isn't that wild? One person administered themselves 180 shocks. (laughs) We call that intensity junkie. (laughs) Rather than be with themselves. What would you do? So that's why the Buddha began teaching, to help us understand this challenge called life. How do we navigate in it? How do we work with this very complex and sophisticated and sensitive mind-body-heart mechanism? 
how do we navigate this internally and our external world of relationships and work and family and uh, responsibility. Another cartoon, I'm in cartoon mode, so I'm gonna stay on a roll. Um, So three captions of a cartoon. First caption says the history of man, or mankind. Second caption, the guy scratching his chin, asking him, little bubble, what the hell am I doing here? Third caption, the end. (laughs) We're in the middle. (laughs) What the hell am I doing here? (laughs) Who am I? What am I? Where am I going? What's important? What does it mean to live a life of value and purpose and meaning? How do I open my heart? How do I not be so reactive? How do I find stillness in a busy mind? It's important questions. How do I find the peace that I'm longing for? So the Buddha, through his own practice and realization, attempted to uh, deliver uh, a body of work, a body of teachings that were directly oriented to our experience to understanding ourselves, to understanding, particularly as we've been speaking to, how is it that we are unhappy? How is it that we feel stress? He was particularly interested in, I would say, two things. How we, how we meet and encounter the, the, the inevitable suffering of this world, internally and externally, and how we work with our our relationship and reaction to that, how we work with our self-created psychological and emotional and mental anguish. So that's what he was orienting towards. How do we find peace, wisdom, cloud in the midst of that. And that's what you've been doing here. Very simple conditions. Sit and walk, eat, sleep, be present. How do you develop a skillful relationship to this moment, to this breath, to this pain, to this boredom, to this longing, to this fantasy, to this life. And so this retreat, this meditation, this moment is a microcosm of how you live your life. And it's a little humbling, isn't it? Right? How is it that I I find just this really hard? Anybody not found this hard? Some of you, some of you found it okay. But most people probably say this is work. Right? You go back to the office and, and you say, oh, I've been on this retreat and we're meditating all day and n- nature and they're going to go, oh, that sounds like a breeze. You're probably blissed out the whole time. How relaxing for you. You're probably feeling very you know, nourished and right now I'm exhausted. <laughs> I need a holiday. <laughs> so... So the Buddha framed 
at some point and contextualized his understanding and his teaching in a teaching called the Four Noble Truths. Or as Stephen Batchelor calls it, the Four Calls to Action, the Four Responses. And so I'll just briefly um, explore some aspects of that teaching because it's really fundamental to our practice and to our lives. And you want to understand whenever you're reading or studying or hearing about these teachings, the point isn't to develop a nice intellectual understanding, although that's helpful. The point and the imperative is how do these teachings apply to my life to facilitate freedom and happiness? So what I was struck by in this retreat in the groups was the intensity of people's experience. Both days, all the groups I was in, there's a lot of intensity that people come to retreat with. Not that, I, not, not that this is new to me, but I'm always surprised about the depth of the human struggle. You know, someone's grappling with the loss of a loved one. Someone's grappling with the struggle of their teenage kids. Someone's struggling with the loss of more than a dozen family members in the last few years. Someone's grappling with recovering from cancer. And on and on it goes. This is called life. This is called the human condition. There's a line that I love. It says, be kind to every person that you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. When I listen to each person in the groups, I hear the burden, one or many. Right? And it behooves all of us to remember that. That's why we have the groups, because we can hear each other's experience and go, wow, there's a lot going on here. And it, and it opens the heart. Sometimes it breaks the heart to hear about other people's challenges. Parenting, loss, existential crisis, loneliness, dealing with trauma. It's not, it's not all there is, but it is a, an important part of our experience. And so these teachings are asking, how do we meet that in ourselves and others? How do we hold a kind, open awareness with those difficulties? And the Buddha, and I think growing up in, you know, he, he, was, he lost his mother at birth, and just growing up in, a, you know, in an agrarian, feudal culture, where you're closer to the land, closer to the cycles, where medicine was very primitive, and so people you know, probably had a life expectancy of 30, and probably many people uh, died at childbirth. And so there's a lot more closeness to the, to the, the, sort of the heart of physical realities. So when the Buddha talked about this life, this one aspect of this truth is that there is, there is suffering in this life. Birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering. I think in that, at that time, that's very real. You know, we can talk about old age, sickness, and death, and maybe it seems very distant. It's in a hospital somewhere. Right? But this is the human condition. 
And maybe some of you are dealing with sickness. I know you are dealing with sickness. Some of you are dealing with aging issues. Some of you are dealing with death issues, the death of loved ones. He framed the understanding of, of this quality of unsatisfactoriness of, this, of, the, of the inherent suffering in life, of not getting what we want, and of getting what we don't want. And we see that very clearly in meditation. <laughs> we often get what we don't want. Busy, crazy mind, hurting body, distracted attention, painful heart. Getting, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want. Anybody not get what they want? <laughs> Silly question. Right? But that's hard. Right? It's hard not to it's hard to have a, a wanting, desiring mind and heart, and hard not to get that which you're seeking. Hard to live with that which you don't want, but you have to live with. And I had chronic fatigue for a while. That was really not what I wanted. It lasted in different ways for years. Really hard to be with. Really hard not to fight with one's body. Being separated from that which you love. There's another way he described this, this the word is dukkha, which means unsatisfactoriness or difficult to bear. The aspects of life that are difficult to bear. And we could all go around the room and add a li- something to that list. It's a long list of things that are difficult to bear. It's not all there is. Sometimes it's, but the Buddhism is quoted as saying life is suffering, which is not true. There, there is suffering in life, clearly. There is unsatisfactoriness in life. Even if the perfect, beautiful day, it's sunny, it's spring, you're well-fed, and, uh, and your body's healthy, and you like your roommate, and your meditation's good, but some, there's always something. There's always that little, but only if only I could concentrate more. If only I wasn't so tired. If only my partner back home wasn't so pissed that I'm here on the retreat. If only, you know... There's a rub. There's a rub. That's called life, called being human. Sometimes the thing we're most separated from is our true nature, or from our heart, or from our body, or from love itself. There's a there's, the Buddha talked a lot about this aspect of our experience, which is, is very reassuring. Oh, someone's saying, oh, your life actually isn't a bed of roses. He talked about this thing called dukkha dukkha, dukkha of the body, the unsatisfactoriness of having a body. And someone, when I was in Baja, someone said, you know, it's a drag having this body. It gets hot, and then it gets cold, and then you have to feed it, and then you have to pee it and poop it, and then you have to you know, do, deal with this hair and put some oil on the skin because it's drying up, and the lips are chapping. And it, it's a lot of work taking care of this body, you probably noticed. Wash it and feed it and, you know, and all the rest of it. It's beautiful and wonderful and amazing and it's work. And it gets sick and it dysfunctions and it gets old. And then there's the, the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of change. As, as beautiful as change can be in the seasons and light and movement and the breeze, it's also hard to be with. Because everything that we hold dear, everything that we love, I was sitting thinking about this talk, and one of my favorite blue birds, the Western bluebird, which are very shy, they live at, there's a 
pair at the bottom of the um, the land here that gets beautiful blue, this very indescribable light blue. And it jumped onto my uh, veranda and my place down there. And I was like, oh, oh my favorite bird. <laughs> and it disappeared. <laughs> oh no, come back. <laughs> Putting bread outside and you know, seeds. <laughs> Life is fleeting. It's beautiful. You appreciate it. We love it. We cherish it. And it goes. It goes. Everything goes. Experience. How many meditation experiences have you been chasing? You have that taste of bliss, of quiet, of rapture, of love. And we spend the next how long chasing it? Hours? Joseph Goldstein, one of our teachers, said he spent two years chasing an experience. He was in India, had having these very beautiful experiences, and he had to fly home back to the States for a funeral, went back and spent two years trying to get back to where he was. That was a long time. Save yourself that time. <laughs> if it's gone, it's gone. The very fact that it arose, it arose because you weren't grasping after something. As soon as we grasp after something, whatever it is we're seeking is elusive. So there's the internal distress and unsatisfactoriness, there's the changing nature of things, there's the, and then that's not, not to speak of the huge amount of pain and suffering in the world, whether it's in Syria or the refugees or famine or racism or exploitation, I mean, you name it, it's everywhere. How do we cultivate a wise, skillful relationship to it? Life demands that we engage fully with it and find a way to navigate with skill, with kindness, with patience, with love. And when we're unable to have a skillful relationship, what happens? that suffering becomes more burdensome. It becomes more difficult to bear. And this is uh, the realm of the, of the second truths, the cause of our, of our psychological, emotional, mental pain is, comes as a result of how we relate and interface with experience. It's a very simple example. So a friend of mine's on retreat, he's having a really hard time, it's a long retreat, he's hating it, and he has the thought, donuts. That's gonna do it, donuts. So he walks three miles down into town, it's freezing, this is in Massachusetts in winter, freezes his ass off, gets down to the store, gets a pack of 12 donuts, two cans of Coke, walks back, finds there's the only Quiet places, this graveyard, which is sort of ironic. <laughs> he sits down, leans up against the headstone, stuffs all 12 donuts, <laughs> drowns down with Coke, feels disgusting, <laughs> feels, and then feels ashamed that he left the retreat, that he got so caught in that wanting mind, and then feels awful because he's made himself feel sick. Right? That's not a skillful relationship to the 
<laughs> the difficult conditions of life. But we all have our story, right? I've done, I did the same thing. I was on a retreat and I was miserable and my roommate had a cold. I thought, great, he's got a cold. I'll go to the store and be really noble and get him some cold medicine. And I'll load up on candy, on chocolates and stuff. And, and this is in England where they, they have just shops just full of sweets, candy. So I hike it down. Three miles, stormy weather, like drenched, completely soaking, freezing. Get to the store. It's open. I load up with chocolates. Completely forget about this cold medicine. <laughs> get back to the retreat. He's sitting there. I'm uh. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Do you like some chocolate? <laughs> and he draws me a cartoon. He was an artist. He drew me his cartoon and me at the store. And I'm like, can I have another chocolate? Another chocolate. And behind the woman and behind the counter is like cold medicine, flu medicine. No, I'll have another one of those candies over there. <laughs> so how do you relate to the difficult circumstances of your life? Right? This, the phrase, suffering equals pain times resistance. Suffering equals pain times a conflicted relationship with difficulty. So when we get ample opportunity here to see how we meet difficult experience, because there's plenty of difficult experience. One of the lovely, uh, of the many very poignant teachings of the Buddha was he highlighted that we have three, fat, three qualities of our tone to our experience. It's either pleasant and we like it, it's either ple- unpleasant and we don't like it, or it's neutral and we don't really care because we don't really notice. Based on those three simple, very subtle qualities of our experience, we react. If it's pleasant, we want it. If it's unpleasant, we hate it. So, so we have plenty of opportunities where we have pleasantness and unpleasantness. And plenty of times when we're not so mindful and it's pleasant and we grab. Just like my friend had a pleasant thought, donuts. Mmm, donuts. I like donuts. Without mindfulness, he's three miles down in the local village. <laughs> or as was I. <laughs> So, and we believe that if we, you know, a sort of instinctual hardwiring that forms into beliefs is if we, if we get enough pleasantness and we manage to eradicate the unpleasantness, we'll be happy. And if we string enough pleasurable moments together, then that's called a happy day. I get up, I sneak out my little private coffee stash, I make a little coffee, and then I sneak out my donut stash or my chocolate stash. And if you're new to retreats, you'll know that, that by your second retreat, you can you, people start bringing stashes of things. Right? First retreat, you're like, oh, I'll just whatever, I'll just accept whatever comes. Second retreat, oh, I'll start hoarding all these things. <laughs> Longer the more retreats you've sat, the bigger the bag. You know. <laughs> Anyhow, so. So you get to see, how do you relate to unpleasant experience? Because again, retreat and meditation is a microcosm of life. 
how you react here in the microcosm of your mind and body is how you react in the office, with your family, on the street, in life, to watching politicians. So how are you when, when you're not, when you don't have clarity, right? A lot, a lot of what happens when we, when we become meditators, we get attached to clarity, brightness. It's lovely to have a bright, clear mind, isn't it? But that's not often the case. We are tired, we're restless, it's distracted, it's busy. Do we fight and reject the dullness and the sleepiness? What about your body? When the body's feeling achy, or you, that old injury comes back, or the knee, pain in your knees gets intolerable, or wherever you sit, you've got a bench, you've got this whole armada of cushions, and it's like a castle, you know, you can, <laughs> someone counted, someone, talking about, Spring talked about Vipassana Vendetta, this one person had it in for this other person on re, in the last retreat, I was, and they said, yeah, and she has 17 cushions. <laughs> Who needs 17 cushions? Well, apparently she did. <laughs> so, but you, as you notice, it doesn't matter how many cushions. <laughs> the body is the body. It will feel discomfort. No matter how many pads and cushions and things. And How are we with that? Do we get angry and hateful of the body, our knees, of our injuries? Are we, are we envious of the people who are sitting like this? You know, like you're wanting them to move, like just move a little bit, just scratch. <laughs> <laughs> We're funny, aren't we? Yeah. You gotta laugh, because we are funny. If you don't laugh, it's not funny, as Wavy Gravy says. So again, in Baha, we have these uh, wonderful Buddhas, they're called um, fruit flies. And it's like, it's like perfect conditions. It's 71 degrees to swim in. It's warm, but not too hot. It's breezy, but not too windy. And it's beautiful, staggeringly beautiful and stark. And it's like, ah. Oh. And they love liquid, right? They love fluid, right? Eyes, nose, Ears. They don't bite, so they're actually pretty harmless. And if you sit still, they actually leave you alone. When you start flapping around, they get really excited. <laughs> Ooh, some action. <laughs> and they're just a great metaphor for life, right? right? It's, like, it's like the annoying person in the office, right? There's, there's usually one, right? Or the annoying person on the retreat that you've chosen to focus on, that, that you're convinced they're ruining your retreat. Right, the sliding, crawling up your nose. It's a great equanimity practice. Can I just be present, breathe? They eventually, like all things are impermanent, it works both ways. We might lock, you know, mourn the loss of the bluebird, right? but we can also know that the, the intolerable itch in the nose from the fly is going to go away. Right? So you, can, you find equanimity knowing that everything is going to pass away. Right? It's wonderful sitting with... You know, when I'm on retreat, I like to sit with unpleasant sensation, not, not painful sensation that's hurtful, like in the knees, but like, you know, you sit, and you eventually sit long enough and your, your bum goes numb, right? And you get, it goes all tingly and hot and cold and all kinds of things. And it's really interesting to see 
the waves of sensation. And at times it feels intolerable, I've got to move, I've got to move, I've got to move. And then suddenly those tingling, that, that fire, the burning turns to bliss. And you feel bliss for a while. Like, oh, this is good. And then it turns back into fire. Oh no, oh no, got to move, got to move, got to move, got to move. Oh, and then something else happens. A sound happens. And so we're exploring our relationship to experience. So there's the three, there's the fundamental movements. There's the resistance to that which we don't like. And we have our styles. Some people strike out against it. We hate it. We're rageful. We're angry. We want to get rid of. We want to squash that fly. Or we back away. We avoid. We bypass. We space out. We resist. We back off. Two main modes of that movement towards or away from unpleasant experience. What do you do? What's your style? You're more like, get away? Or do we like, fear, anxiety, dread? Of course, it's a combination of both. But practice and life invites us moment by moment. How am I relating to this? Freedom is in our relationship to life. The conditions of life are going to keep coming at us. It doesn't get better as you get older. It doesn't get better as you've practiced for 30 years. The conditions of life are the conditions of life. Birth, old age, sickness, and death, that's how it is. What is transformative is our capacity to be with it, to find the inner spaciousness, presence, freedom, heartfulness, to meet it. So there's the unpleasant, then there's the pleasant. So all those things I was talking about earlier, the the dukkha, whether it's the emotional pain, the physical pain, the life challenges, the relational challenges, you're being asked, how do I meet this? How do I hold this with curiosity, with tenderness, feeling into our innate vulnerability? There's a beautiful moment on, on on this Baha retreat and this woman who was we were out in the very hot sun all week, no shade, a little shade, and she's, she's very sun sensitive, suffers from heat stroke, and cannot be in the sun without burning like instantly. And so she's having spent a lot of time slathering on buckets of sun lotion, you know, sun protection. And she's hating her body. I hate my body. It's so sensitive, so vulnerable. I hate it. I'm sick of it. It's just tedious to take care of it. And she, said, and she said that in, in a meeting, as she said, I'm just hating my body for being so vulnerable. And I said, oh, sweetheart, it's, being human is vulnerable. It's the nature of being human is to be vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. And if we can't love our vulnerability, we've got a problem. It's more suffering. Right? And so many of the things that I'm hearing in the groups is really speaking about your vulnerability, your vulnerability to loss, to pain, to sadness, to fear, to confusion, to heartache in relationship. Can we bring a a loving tenderness to that vulnerability? And so that practice for her became loving. Can she love her body when she's putting on the lotion? And it was a beautiful transformation to see her do that. You could see when she was loving and when she was resenting. Such a great metaphor. And we all, you know, so what's your, what's your sensitivity? Right? We all have it. Right? 
So we have the relationship to what's difficult, and then we have the relationship to the pleasant, right? the longing for those sweet moments, the longing for ease, the longing for um, pleasure, for happiness. Right? How we manipulate our experience in meditation to get that moment of peace. There's another cartoon where there's a, a, a woman, medit- a, woman a, a person meditating and there's a few thought bubbles, which I'm sure if we could, wish we could project all your thought bubbles up on the screen somewhere because it'd be really funny. Um, and she's saying, come on, come on, peace of mind. Is that it? Is that peace of mind? Come on, I know a freaking day. Is that it? Is that it? Right? That's how we are. Moment of happiness? Ooh. And of course, as soon as we see it, we grab it, and it's gone, right? elusive. This is the unwise relationship to the pleasant. Right? We have an unwise relationship to the unpleasant, and we have an unwise relationship. And by, by, when I say unwise, I don't mean to judge that. I mean unwise as in it will lead to the not... It will lead to the, to the dissolution of that moment of happiness. <laughs> So again, to notice the, your, your movement towards the, away from the unpleasant towards the pleasant. Right? What's your proverbial donuts? You know, what, what, where, what is, what's, the, what's the shiny object that captivates you? Right? That's a fuel for obsessive thinking, for fantasy, for addiction. Right? Maybe your, your, um, your, your shiny object is, is uh, philosophy is views and opinions, right? Is needing to be right. So fortunately, the Buddha didn't end with two noble truths, (laughs) because that would suck. (laughs) The suffering, here's how you're causing it. Get over it. <laughs> Stop doing it. No. He laid out a whole path. Specifically understanding our relationship with experience. Through the lens of mindfulness, through the lens of awareness, we can begin to slow down and understand how we're relating to experience. See how we're causing undue stress unnecessary hardship. It's so interesting to be in a group, you know, like in Baja was a good example. For some people, they hated being hot. Some people hated being cold. Some people hated the bugs. Right? Same experience, but depending on how the person's relating to it, well-being or not. So Einstein, I'm not sure if Einstein did say this, but I got it on the internet, so it must be true. The greatest freedom is the ability to choose one's attitude, no matter what the circumstances. The greatest freedom is to choose one's attitude in any set of circumstances. The Buddha said the same thing. We have the capacity to transform our relationship to experience, to life. So that Viktor Frankl quote that I, that's an oft-quoted phrase is a good 
example of what happens with mindfulness. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. Right? Between stimulus and many stimuli, right? flies, sad heart, painful body, difficult life circumstances. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space lies our power and freedom to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and happiness. So mindfulness is allowing and cultivating that space between stimulus and response. So we're shifting from stimulus, releasing the reactivity, and responding wisely if we can. And in that choicefulness, there's more space, there's more ease, there's more freedom. So the great gift of this practice is that we're, we're, we're cultivating mindfulness moment by moment that's actually giving us the opportunity to see how we're relating to life. And we see that happiness isn't out there in a thing or an experience or a person. It's how we're orienting towards it. And so one of the things that mindfulness does in a way that Viktor Frankl was pointing to is it allows us the space to disidentify or disengage from the usual habitual reactive process. So spending a lot of time in nature as I do and having done this practice for a while, I appreciate the, the, the resilience actually that comes from equanimity that comes from mindfulness. That, you know, for example, the, the bugs are a good example. You know? That I know the suffering is in, in the bugs. Even if they're crawling up my nose, the suffering is it's unpleasant. But the suffering comes from my reacting and hating it in my mind. Right? The suffering in, isn't, in this, isn't in the heartbreak. The suffering is in my reaction to it. Sadness is sadness, it's painful. But if I'm rejecting it, if I'm abandoning myself, that's suffering. So I remember I went through about some years ago of very intense anxiety. I, I, I took myself off on this writing retreat. I had a book I wanted to write, which I've now almost finished. And I took myself this incredibly remote cabin. It was two plane rides, a boat ride, a taxi ride, a shuttle, and like, it was just, it's just like, you know, in the Arctic almost, because um, I thought I needed solitude. <laughs> and in that, in, on, on, there's something about the solitude and what was going on in my life and the constellation, I just had a massive anxiety attack. So much so I couldn't write. It was really hard to be with, and I decided to come home because I needed the support of my home life. And when I came home, the anxiety didn't relieve. It stayed, it lasted for several months. And it really, as anxiety does, as these strong emotions does, it really forces you up against yourself and your resources. And of course I tried uh, to do everything I could to get rid of it. (laughs) I tried meditating in a way, 
I tried, you know, all kinds of things. And it just, every day I would wake up this just knot of anxiety and terror sometimes. And until I could soften enough, soften the nervous system, soften my body, and really open to it with my heart and love myself in the middle of the anxiety, that's when that anxiety started to soften. When I found a a non-contentious, loving relationship with that very difficult state, then the whole thing began to soften, and over time it dissolved. The the suffering was in my reactivity, not in the thing itself. When I came to peace with the anxiety, it was just anxiety. And prefer it. I prefer to be you know quiet than anxious. But it was clear to see that in it was in my relationship. I could be free in relationship to relationship to it, whether it was present or absent. And so when the Buddha speaks about unconditional freedom, the third noble truth, which is what I'm pointing to, is this capacity to be free in relationship to whatever conditions are arising. A non-contentious, non-reactive, non-afflictive relationship to, to a life, to experience. So it doesn't mean you make your life perfect or your body perfect or your personality perfect, because good luck with that project. You need a few lifetimes for sure. But we can work with our relationship. I had a student on a, I, I teach this course, this year long course called Essential Buddhist Teachings, and um, I forget where we were in the course, and, and uh, we were exploring equanimity, I think. And she was a chronic warrior, she called herself, and a nervous Nelly. And uh, she'd been, she said she'd been nervous her whole life, anxious, a warrior. And I said, so her homework was. Be mindful of the worry. Be the one that's knowing, not the one that's worrying. And so she took that on as a practice and she had a little trigger in her life that that would usually trigger a lot of worry and anxiety. And the worry came, but she she saw that she wasn't the one who was worried. The worry was present, but she had a calm relationship to it. There was space, there was disidentification where we disengage from being embroiled and find peace in the midst of it. Doesn't mean the worry goes away, although it diminishes in its impact. Does that make sense? You following that? The same with, I was working with uh, uh, a guy here who was um, a theater, he was a theater director actually, and um, he had a very critical mind because he's in a, in, a, in, a, in a business where there's a lot of critic, critics, some outer critics. And he was bombarded with his thoughts and judgments and, and just he was assailed. He couldn't find any space. And he was walking down this hill towards the dining room and just mindfully trying to work with his thoughts and thinking, aware and judging. At some point, the, the realization, John, oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts. It's just a bunch of thoughts. That mindful awareness allowed him to take a step back to see, oh, it's just thinking doesn't have to be taken seriously or real or bought into. So the third noble truth is the, is the possibility of cessation where the reactive forces of the mind abate for a moment, for some period of time, or for good. And we can taste this quality of freedom. <clears throat> Achambuddha Dasa called it moments of nibbana. Nibbana is, 
is the peace beyond conditions, the non-reactive peace that's available through awareness, through this non-contentious relationship to life. This is uh, from Achan Sumedho, who is a beautiful teacher of the Four Noble Truths, who says, to allow the truth of cessation to work, we must be willing to suffer. This is why I stress the importance of patience. We have to open our minds to suffering because it is in embracing suffering that suffering ceases. When we find that we are suffering, then we go to the actual pain that is present. We open completely to it, welcome it, concentrate on it, allowing it to be what it is. That means we must be patient and bear with the unpleasantness of a particular condition. We have to endure, endure boredom, despair and doubt and fear in order to understand that they cease rather than running away from them. So maybe you've had that experience. You, you're with something long enough, pain, fear, anxiety, restlessness, doubt. You're with it, you're with it, you're with it. Gonna, and, and the thoughts come, it's never going to end. I'm always going to be anxious. It passes away. And in that passing away, there's a moment of space. There's a moment of freedom. There's a moment of capacity. Right? And so we have this potential in every moment. Everything is arising and ceasing. This is the good news. We all have this capacity in any moment to find that place of peace. No matter how difficult the condition, inner or outer. So I want to read a story and then I'll, I'll wrap up here. So this is a story from um, Darlene Cohen, who uh, was a Zen teacher. She's now passed away. She had a chronic, debilitating, uh, degenerative illness and while she was teaching. And she says, people sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the middle of this pain and this slow crippling can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from the despair and terror in itself. It comes from the shadow I dip into again and again and am flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around this wheel a million times. First I feel the despair, I deny it for a few days, and I, then its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. Finally it overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I'm caught, so at last I give up to this reunion with the dark aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately the release begins. First peace, and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending I could give up right away and just say, take me, I'm yours. But I never can. I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it'd be called something like purification or renewal or something hopeful. It's staring defeat and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying. I resist it until it overwhelms me, but I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. This is someone who's really grappled with this turning. If I had time, I'd read this poem I wrote called The Turn Towards. Ai Chan Cha says, 
By running away from suffering, we run towards it. In this practice, we return towards that which is here, that which is real, that which is difficult. Also that which is beautiful, but in this case, that which is difficult. And in that, find a transformative relationship. And the fourth of the truths, which I'll just, we'll talk a bit about tomorrow, is the path that leads or cultivates these other qualities that were the first, that, that cultivates the capacity to be with experience. Right? So you're doing a lot of that work here. We're cultivating on the Eightfold Path, cultivating mindfulness and concentration and, and wise effort that supports wisdom and, and motivation and, and intention that supports uh, moving in our life, being informed in our life with non-harming and with ethical, uh, and ethical orientation and with skillfulness in our work and in our lives and our speech and the way we move in the world. Right? So, so this is sort of the lay of the land a little bit. This is some of, this is some of the path you've been walking on, both confronting the reality of the inherent uh, uh, unsatisfactoriness or the difficult to bear aspects of life, our reactivity towards it, the capacity to, to, to develop a, uh, a different and transformational relationship to experience where we're not fighting, we're not resisting, we're not demanding, we're actually allowing ourselves and life to be as it is, when we find peace in the middle of all of that. And this is the path we walk. And the Buddha said, whoever in this world overcomes desire, but by desire he's meaning this reactive movement to life, so hard to transcend, will find that suffering falls away like drops of water falling from a flower. And we can access that right now. Right now, where are you? Maybe you're tired, it's been a long talk, I'm sorry. What's your relationship to this moment? I'll be happy when he stops talking. I'll be happy when I go stretch. I'll be happy when I go have my cup of tea. Right? Or, here I am, you know, this moment is like this. Curiosity is like this. Boredom is like this, excitement is like this, or whatever's here is like this. How am I relating to this moment, this tiredness, this curiosity? Can we bring love into the equation? Such a healing, softening force to bring into this relationship. The more we fuse love into how we relate to experience, the more easier it is to relate to with ease, with peace. So let's just sit for a few moments before we close. find the capacity to meet life 
with an open awareness, an open heart, non-reactive attention. <laughs>